before we move on from the in the instructions from mental states, moods and emotions, I wanted to make sure that I left you with the, especially for those of you who are relatively new to practice, left you with the five common mental states that should be, uh, that are useful to be especially aware of. The ones that are sometimes called the five hindrances, sometimes called clouds, obscurations, but they, they're also considered, as one teacher put them, uh, they are considered the manure of Bodhi. They are, when they, when they become part of your practice, they become the cause of your awakening, the cause of your happiness. The awakening of the happiness of a Buddha is through working with certain mental states that when unnoticed cause us, un- cause us misery, when noticed bring us awakening. What are those five common mental states? Anybody, any of you experts willing to say what they are? Clinging or grasping refers to the first of the hindrances is sometimes called the wanting mind. The wanting mind, and it's usually the desire for sense pleasures. The desire for pleasures of the senses. And we may think that that's so human to desire pleasurable sense experience. And it is human because the sensual world is so beautiful and many sensual experiences, or all sensual experiences, when experienced as pleasant, uh, are followed with the desire to repeat them. It comes with the territory. But what we have turned, what we, we have turned a natural inclination toward sense pleasure into a hot pursuit, into an addiction cycle, into a cycle of associating our well-being, having our well-being, our happiness, dependent on satisfying our sensual desires. And once it once this habit of having our well-being dependent on sensual pleasure, once this gets entrenched, entrained in our minds, we are only happy when we have our sense pleasures and unhappy when we don't. So this is called conditional happiness. The Buddha called this lokiya sukha. Lokiya sukha means worldly happiness. Now, the, the Buddha didn't limit worldly happiness to just satisfying our sensual pleasures. Worldly happiness includes being able to have sensual pleasures. It includes being able to share them and share our resources. It includes being debt-free, being free of debt. And it also includes the, the great bliss and the great happiness of what he called blamelessness of being non-harming in your actions, body, of speech, of mind. That all those bring about all kinds of worldly happiness. But when he used the word lokiya sukha, he was mostly referring to the happiness that depends on satisfying the hunger for sense pleasure. 
that we experience moment to moment as, uh, as the addictive habit of wanting what we don't have. Wanting the end of the sitting, wanting the vacation, wanting the weekend, wanting the relationship, wanting the car, wanting the new iPad, wanting the phone, and it goes on and on and on. And each time we practice this and it goes unnoticed, this state of wanting, we are literally in training our mind to feel dissatisfied. The beauty of our practice of awakening, the practice of awakening to a, a more reliable happiness, is we can begin to make a shift from being caught in that trance that associates our happiness and well-being with getting what we want, from being caught in that to noticing it. <coughs> we can notice the wanting mind, as opposed to living in the, the object or the dream of what we want to happen. And that's why when I, I said, of course, it's natural if you're feeling a little uncomfortable or you're tired or whatever to want the bell to ring. And our mind will then project, create, oh, I want the bell to ring and associate the bell as the secret of happiness. <laughs> But the bell isn't what makes you happy. What actually makes us happy, what actually brings happiness in that whole, in that whole interaction of the bell and the desire for the bell, it's not the bell. It's not the weekend. It's not the person. It's not the thing. What is it that brings the happiness and well-being? It's the end of wanting them. It's the cessation of wanting. And meanwhile, we don't even realize that, we're, that we've, we can have that end of wanting in any moment, that we're mindful. And instead, we postpone that until we get what we want. And end, in a, and end up literally practicing remaining in a state of suspended happiness, hostage to the imagined future that never arrives because... It misses the fact that time is only and always now. So if we can wake up to the fact that we're caught in wanting, the very experience of wanting, even though there's a kind of burning in it, you've heard burning with hunger, burning with desire, same with burning with anger, there's a little, there's a little burning in it or some flavor, we use that. We feel it, we see that it's changing take our attention or expand our attention beyond the objects, they're endless. The golden dreams keep changing. We know that. But um, the common theme is the state of wanting, and we can just embrace it, notice it. It's what brought you to this day, so it's not, not desire is a central part of everyone's life, but it's when we're hypnotized by the thought that that's what will really make you happy that we get on the addictive train. So we step off of the train every time you notice the wanting mind and even enjoy it. Even enjoy exploring what that feels like, even though sometimes it's painful. But that's where the relief comes. Flip side of that is aversion, is not wanting. It's associating our well-being with getting away from or getting rid of what we don't like. And there's often a view, of, you know, if there's somebody who's noisy who's sitting next to you or the, you live on a street with a lot of noise, if only that noise would go away, then I'd be happy. 
And then we start our aversion, our reaction to the noise just increases our dis-ease. And then we're hostage to the noise. Instead, what we do is we take our attention off the noise and feel how much we don't like it. And instead of being hostage to the noise, we recognize that aversion is a changing state of mind. I think that's all I want. I don't want to do all the hindrances, but they're, um, the other three, just to name, are restlessness and worry, restlessness and agitation, which we talked about, sloth and torpor, dullness of mind. We talked about that in the balance of energy. The last one I alluded to in the answer to one question earlier, the, maybe the most undermining of all the mental states when they go unnoticed, when it goes unnoticed, and that's the, that's the mental state of doubt. Doubt about ourselves, doubt about the practice, doubt about just some kind of skeptical, confused doubt about, uh, about yourself or about life or about practice. And it's a story. And it will, if you believe the narrative that it tells, it'll just completely zap all of your vital energy. But if you notice it as doubt, put a, put a little line on your, put a note on your refrigerator. Be mindful of doubt. Be mindful of, I can't do this. Everybody else is getting enlightened except me. This is doubt. Uh, all of our all of our judgments about religion or so much stuff is just a disguise for doubt. This can't work. Nothing I do works. I'm a lousy yogi. This is doubt. <laughs> there's just so there's a whole talk in itself, but I can't get into that right now. But pay particular attention to desire, aversion, restlessness, sloth and torpor, and doubt. Each one has a narrative, but we don't want to just get caught up in the story of it. We want to expand beyond the story, feel what that's like in our body. What is aversion like? What is doubt like? What is desire like? What is restlessness? What is torpor like? You will find that if you connect with the felt sense, it will anchor you here. It will also open your heart to the pain of being caught in these mental states, and they will be the cause of compassion. Okay, that's all I want to say about that. Now I'd like us to sit and forget everything you've heard up to this point. I'd just like to reframe the instructions a little bit and just remind you that all of the instructions that I've offered today and will continue during this sitting of insight meditation instructions the Buddha's what the Buddha recommended one practice in order to come to the end of our uh, of our excessive mental distress and come to a sense of well-being that doesn't depend on conditions being a certain way, a kind of unconditional well-being or happiness, that uh, all of the instructions are rather than prescriptions of what you should do and how you should do it. It should be right or wrong or this way or that way. They're mostly descriptions of what you will notice if you sit, if you walk, if you pay attention. 
and we I dole them out slowly uh, so as not to uh, overwhelm you with all of the phenomena that do present themselves in everyone's heart and mind. But during this period, uh, I'd just like to describe uh, the main uh, piece of of instruction that you will likely notice, which is the world of the thinking mind that we've spoken about already. As I mentioned this morning, thoughts are to our door of perception called mind, as a sound is to the ear, as a smell is to the nose, as a taste is to the tongue, as a sensation is to the body. It's another sense experience. We don't tell ourselves, I shouldn't have smells or sounds or tastes, or sensations, but somehow we tell ourselves we shouldn't have thoughts. This is crazy. So a lot of our practice of working with thinking is making the shift from being lost in thought, however, to noticing the thinking mind. And that's what we do. We continue to use the the breath as our primary anchor, The more refined we get by feeling, the more continuous that we experience that flow of the breathing, it actually has the effect of allowing us to notice other things more clearly. So we keep settling in, keep putting our mind together with our body, but from time to time a thought will come, become stronger than the breath. And as your mindfulness increases, you'll begin to notice those thoughts. Not only will you notice those thoughts, you may notice them as they're about to emerge, you may notice them in the middle of a thought, you may notice them after they've just passed. No matter, at whatever point you wake up to the fact that your mind is thinking, just notice that fact. You'll also likely, in the course of noticing the flow of thinking, you will notice, as people alluded to today, you will notice the common themes of your thoughts. You will notice the planning mind. Many people have a lot of planning going on. That's one of my top tunes. Many people have remembering, rehearsing, judging, comparing, analyzing, interpreting, teaching, scolding, shaming. Any others anybody wants to name? Solving. Solving. Fixing. Fixing. Parenting. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Thank you. So this is completely natural based on the conditions of our lives. And our, the key is that we notice the thinking mind and notice the top tunes. We do not try to suppress our thoughts, nor do we try to extend them, to think about them. We try to Treat them like clouds that are effortlessly, spontaneously, unbiddenly passing through an empty sky. They have no more reality than that in truth. As one metaphor puts it, they're like a footprint of a bird in emptiness. Mm -hmm. Insubstantial. They have no roots, they have no home. Thoughts are just empty bubbles. But yet, when they go unnoticed, they have tremendous power And they often leave, as part of their impact, a residue of a feeling in our bodies. And so we can begin to see the interaction between 
our thoughts and our feelings and then our intentions and our actions and we see the way our reality gets created, often with a seed thought. You have a picture in your mind like I have before about uh, eating some ice cream. And in the middle of the night almost, I've been pulled out of bed, into my clothes, down several flights of stairs, into my car, several blocks away to the ice cream parlor, all started with a single thought, followed by a want, followed by a need, followed by I have to have, followed by I'll never be happy unless I satisfy that hunger. And this is the way I'm... So we get to see the interaction between the thinking mind and then sometimes the the, the whole building of the life patterns. So instead, we just notice thoughts as thoughts here. We don't feed them, nor do we suppress them. If you're bothered by your thoughts, they will torment you. But if you come to open to them, give space to them, and not be bothered by them, see them for what they are, they will quiet quite naturally by themselves. But the key is to notice that we're thinking. Okay? So settle in. Forget all the conversation today. Find your body. Feel the dignified posture. Perhaps a little weary after a day of sitting. Feel the aliveness. Or whatever the state of your body, state of your mind. Just see if you can make room for that right now. Complete, utter, radical acceptance of your body and mind just the way they are. Letting go of all strain or tension, the need to do anything about anything or undo anything. Just let yourself be as is. And what you will naturally notice is the stillness of your body, the gentle movements of your breath, Feel free to to stay with the movements of your breath as long as that lasts. And then welcome sounds, sensations, moods, and emotions. And finally, if thoughts become stronger than the breath, simply notice the thinking mind thinking. You can even feel free to make a soft mental label of thinking, thinking. And if you simultaneously notice the kind of thought that's arising, you can even make a soft mental label, planning, planning, remembering, judging, comparing, whatever it might be, parenting. If you have to think about what kind of thought it is, don't bother. Just thinking, mind thinking. As the thoughts fade away, Feel your body breath. 
give your mind a huge pasture. Rest in natural great peace. Is there awareness right now? What are you aware of? Relax. Nothing to do or undo.
happiness or well-being has virtually nothing to do with what's happening, has everything to do with how you're relating to what's happening. Is there openness to the way things are right now? Is there tightness or contentiousness? Are you straining to make something happen? These are attitudes of mind that turn our experience into disharmony. Just notice what's the attitude of mind.
stop meditating. Just be mindful. Stop being a meditator. Just be mindful. So appreciate you staying with the day. Just a quick check-in to see if there are any comments, questions, descriptions about working with thinking mind. One thing I didn't mention was the arising of images in the mind, and we treat those as as seeing. You know, just we don't try to undo them. We just notice the seeing mind, the inner sight. See what happens to them just like we would have thought. Um, So that's also included in that which we can notice. So does anyone have any thoughts? Any, Any recognition of what your top tunes were? Please, David. Dividing line, any thoughts about navigating the, the dividing line between attachment and determination? So determination to strengthen the practice. Determination to, to strengthen the practice versus attachment to strengthening the practice. Well, tell me how you understand the difference between those two. <laughs> uh, I guess the attachment is wanting the benefits uh, of... Uh, meditation and determination is to get the benefits. I don't know. That's that's my question. I, I don't really know. I know that that if if I feel like I'm attached to it, it usually doesn't go well. Uh, but the determination can easily bleed over into attachment. So, to me, uh, uh, there's a a passage in here which I don't think I'll find, but. Uh, but I will, I'll give it a try. But the way that you're describing attachment sounds like a very healthy attachment. Uh, usually we associate attachment with bad, clinging, pain. But I look at the and same with desire. And yet it's clear that the teachings on desire and all the, the hardened fo- 
forms of desire, attachment, clinging, etc., depend a lot on the engine that's driving them. It de they depend on, there are different kinds of desires. There's desires and attachments that are what you might call wholesome, that are onward leading, that, that bring more happiness and well-being. And then there's those desires and attachments that lead to more desire and attachment. And the desire for freedom and the benefits of practice is one of those desires that no other desire to feed the wanting mind can fulfill. So it goes against the stream. It sounds like your attachment or those that go against the stream. So they sound to my ear at first glance or at first hearing to be healthy attachments. So that just to bust the whole idea, oh, attachment bad. And of course, if we have a, let's say we framed it as though you're having, that your mind is giving rise to wholesome desires to experience the fruits and the benefits of practice. And, uh, and I wouldn't necessarily, I, I might clarify a little more what those fruits and benefits you're looking for. Because some of them will be very short-lived and some of them are, the Buddha's recommendation is that you aim for the highest benefits and let all the other kinds of uh, benefits like more pleasure and more this come in the wake of that, but not make those your aim, concentration or, or even any particular experience. Those are, they're empty. But the desire for awakening, that's wholesome desire. So to clarify what your aim is, and then if you have any wholesome desire, determination is an essential mental state. It's one of the factors of enlightenment. Virya, energy, um, you have to have it, otherwise you don't, you don't uh, practice. Well, it sounds all good. Let me see if I can find this passage on attachment. Can't find it. I tried. <laughs> Low determination. I have a high determination to stay connected to you, though. So, any other comments or questions about your practice, about the instructions, anything you noticed, working with thoughts? Are you all cooked already? Please. I feel really, thanks. I feel like really frustrated. Like I feel like if I like left in the morning, I'd be fine. But after like the whole day, I just feel like I can't do it, or like so, that so, I was just so, like fighting the whole time. So you have a lot of doubt that's <sighs> rising in your mind. So like, right? how do I like stay positive about it and like do it you, tomorrow? You don't have to stay positive. I want you to just feel the effects of whatever you've been thinking right now, and just sense how that feels in your body to feel frustrated and feel disappointed or whatever it is and close your eyes for a second just see if you can feel it in your body don't try to do anything about it are you feel comfortable to do that with me okay just let that be felt for a second just i'm going to this may be a strange way of putting it but just die to the feeling that you're having right now 
nothing else that needs to happen. And tell me what you're noticing now as you really let give space for that feeling of frustration and disappointment. I guess it feels more manageable. Okay, notice the feeling of that it's more manageable. And just stay with that for a moment. Ah, things are more manageable. Let that be felt. Yeah, make sure you breathe. I like that you're breathing. Easy to hold our breaths when we're breaths when we're uncomfortable. Yeah. Now what are you noticing if you can? Just the state of your mind. Just like more calm? No. Okay, notice the calm. Don't try to hold it. Don't try to make anything happen. Just let calm be calm right now. Just be able to say inwardly, oh, calm is like this. And now what? What are you noticing? I don't know. <laughs> You're laughing. Yeah. Where's, where's that doubt anyway? I mean, I, yeah, like I wish I could have felt that before, but <laughs> <laughs> but it, it feels better than like a minute ago. <laughs> it is really, thank you so much for putting out your, your experience because it really is a, it's part of the, it's part of the manure of our practice. Every person navigates the periods of, of doubt and although they wouldn't be called the, the five hindrances if they weren't really a central part of our practice. One of my teachers used to say that practice is easy, it's just the hindrances that are difficult. <laughs> the other, the same teacher said that the, the, the hindrances are the practice. So learning how to work with those mental states, just like you did, it's just noticing them, tracking them, notice what happens, how they feel in your body, and you'll see that they're like weather fronts. Doubt is doubt. It's not personal. It's not, you. It's not about you. It's, a, it's a, a state of mind. It's a little storm that runs through the mind. And part of what, what makes it so painful is we get, we get what's called identified with it. It becomes me. But when you experience it intimately, you see that it's, it's just weather. It's moving. It's dynamic. And all of a sudden, you're a different person. Look at the light in your eyes. It's incredible. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Please. I've been noticing a sensation in my heart area that's, I can maybe best describe as tenderness, but it's also, it's, it's kind of a burning, kind of painful tenderness. Um, and then... I notice this a lot when I practice. Um, oh, so not just today. Not just today, yeah. But today also. Um, mm -hmm. And then, like I notice myself today, okay, so not knowing, okay, is that the experience that is more prominent than the breath so I stay with it? Or I go back with the breath, mm -hmm. am I... Am I too clinging to it if I stay with it? Um, I have a story about it that it's a good thing. <laughs> I love, your, um, love your comments, love your question. I think it's completely 
up to you. <laughs> there, will be, there will be times when it seems like there are 15 things that are competing for our attention. And I suggest generally picking the one that's most interesting. <laughs> the one that, that calls your attention. And then if it is this particular feeling in your heart that seems to arise commonly, it, to experience that what seems the same, then you can also in some way use that as the, as the ground at which you notice all the different reactions to it. So what's included in your mindfulness would be, oh, there is some grasping at this. You can notice that. You don't have to get rid of it. When I said notice the attitude of mind, whether there's resistance, whether you're trying to make something happen, or whether you're building a, a personality story about it, it doesn't mean you need to stop doing that. You just need to notice that. That's part of what, that's part of the field of mindfulness. It's not just that feeling. There's all kinds of, there's a sequence of many different things happening at once. So if you hover there with that feeling, you may notice all kinds of things. And you may notice the discontinuity of that feeling. It comes, it goes, it flashes on and on. You may notice that it gets bigger, it gets smaller, it vanishes. You may notice that you, you then feel murderous rage. You never know. But you open to whatever unfolds. Or you can go back to the breath. <laughs> so, so I notice a lot of those things. Um, the the grasping of it, yeah. the, the story that I make up, oh, this has to do with whatever yes. as it ha recently happened. Yes. Um, uh, but, and then I just name those as grasping and story. You can name them or just, most important is that you notice them. The, but if spontaneously you can, you can uh, name them or label them, that's fine too. That's just a tool to help you stay connected to that, and not elaborate on it. Right. See, the, the use of concepts of mental noting is more of a preventative from the excessive elaboration on whatever's there. Just want to keep it simple. Yeah. But remember, we're doing that not to get to the bottom of anything. We're doing it because that's what's true. And then when we see what's true, we also see the commonality of what's true for everything. And what's common is that everything that you notice is in a state of change. To try to hold on to it brings tension and suffering. And that it's all happening very selflessly. It's all doing its own thing. And you'll see that over and over with everything. Thoughts are thinking themselves. The feelings are coming. The breath is breathing itself. It's all happening. Sounds come. Everything just happens of itself. So the more you see that, the less personal it all seems. The less personal, the less, less clingy, the less reaction, less suffering. Somebody else had that? Yeah, please. You know, I'm just beginning to think that the goal here is to be mindful and not to learn how to meditate. You know, I mean, in the sense of, you know, and I'm just thinking through this. I'm, I've been thinking, okay, well, you know, I've never meditated. I'm not a meditator. I'm this. But, but meditation then is just the practice. It's just one way to learn how meditation to be mindful. Meditation is a way of, of, of sustaining mindfulness in a, in a very continuous way to the point where it develops such a power of mind that it transforms your understanding because you are seeing so laser-like and so deeply into the nature of reality that it changes you. It changes your identity. 
changes your view of reality. To just be mindful in our usual secular view of that, it's very helpful. We can helps us more skillfully navigate our lives, but it doesn't necessarily lead to the what I've been describing as that sure heart's release, that liberation of the heart. So that's what the meditation that's does. In where, other words, practicing it, that yeah. meditation, regardless of the form, whatever to whatever extent you can develop a continuous flow of attention. And you can do that in, in informal ways too, but very few people do. And the, and the atmosphere of formal meditation creates more of an opportunity than most to have sustained uh, practice so that it actually builds okay. a power of mind, not just, not just a little mindfulness muscle. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. The word sustain is really helpful too. Thanks. Contin- yeah, continuity. Continue. It's the secret of practice. No breaks. <laughs> Please. Hi. Um, Hi. So throughout the day, I've no- I'm a beginner to meditation, but throughout the day I've noticed um, I've been trying to figure out how I should sit to help my breathing and keep my focus and my comfort so that I can get into that state of whatever state I'm trying to flow into. (laughs) But um, I've just been finding myself kind of frustrated. I notice, you know, sitting up, I've used those chairs a few times in the past and that kind of helped, but I keep finding myself wanting to, maybe it's I just have bad posture and I'm used to that, but (laughs) kind of wanting to be more, you know, leaning back or forward or, so yeah. the whole day I've been trying to figure that out. What are your thoughts on... Thank I mean, I you so there's... much for your comment and, and voice of so many people in the room. <laughs> and it's really a, a wonderful segue for me into, into clarifying a little bit more of the Buddha's teachings on happiness. Because the Buddha, his teaching on happiness, he did mention the happiness of worldly happiness, this happiness of getting what you want. Happiness of sense pleasure, which means getting a comfortable posture, getting your body to hurt less, getting the room to quiet down more, getting your mind to be more peaceful, getting, getting all the things that you want in your life. There's pleasure that comes with that. But he also described that kind of uh, happiness. He called it conditioned happiness. He called it happiness that depends on conditions, which means you're happy if, the, if it happens, you're unhappy if it, don't, if it doesn't. And as you described, you're frustrated at this point. So you've been depending on worldly or, or conventional happiness for your well-being, and because it's not reliable, it doesn't always come, you've been unhappy a lot today. And I'm not singling you out. It's, it's everybody, and whatever our own version is. He also called that, that attachment to that kind of happiness, that lokiya sukha, worldly happiness, he also called it the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage. We bind ourselves up in a dependency on conditions that are not very reliable. And so we're, we're all often in a state of waiting or working to try to get it right instead of being able to find relief just the way it is, even when it's uncomfortable. So that, so that kind of worldly happiness contrasts with the happiness of a Buddha, which he called Lokutra Sukha. Lokutra means unstuck from worldly happiness. A happiness that doesn't depend on things getting to be a certain way. Doesn't depend on satisfying a hunger, a longing, a desire. It, it 
depends on nothing. It's unassailable. It's unconditioned. It's your, in other words, it's your natural state independent of circumstances. So that's what we've been pointing to all days. What, what does not depend on circumstances? Now, when we, did, was it not true that you had the same awareness when you were happy as when you were sad? When you were tired and when you were energized? Did awareness change in any of that? It's the same, same primordial presence. You think that's significant? See, within us, within each of us, what I call our natural state, is our natural state is that well-being and happiness that doesn't depend on circumstances. But we're busy looking for it in our posture. I'm not singling you out by any means. Looking for it in our posture, in our relationships, in our, in our music, in our apparatus, whatever it is. Trying to get the world right, which of course our heart's broken. We want to do whatever we can. But in most of what we use as our medicine to try to bring relief and happiness, it's actually increasing our feeling of dissatisfaction. Because it's, the conditions are always changing. So what happened to the Buddha is he, he saw something that all of us need to, that it's a beginning of being able to see that things are not so reliable. It's not easy to find a, a permanently comfortable posture, even though the first day of anybody's practice, just to normalize it for you, the first day of anyone's practice is just getting your seat, trying to figure out how to sit relatively comfortable. And that's for, it's just so natural. And over time you'll see that there is no one, com- there is, there's one that's relatively comfortable, but any posture at some point will hurt. That's the law of nature. There is, if you are born, you will have periods, no matter how comfortable you are, that feel uncomfortable, unreliable, unsatisfactory. That's what's called dukkha. Life has within it things that are hard to bear. I, would, I just came off of being, I had the good fortune of being off for two weeks. And uh, being off was nice, being not not working as much. Uh, it's nice, pleasurable. Then I noticed that it was coming to an end. And I noticed I didn't want it to come to an end. <laughs> okay, so there was a little clinging to the... Even though within that time off, there was good, the bad, and the ugly, you know. But more, you know, some of the benefits of whatever the benefits are of not being engaged as much. But then I realized that once I'm back on the saddle, as I am today, there's dukkha here too. There's dukkha leaving what I was doing. There's dukkha doing what I'm doing. There, you know, there's, there's, there is unreliability and unsatisfactoriness in any, any place that we are in our life. That comes with the territory. And that's what the Buddha saw. What really shook him up is he saw that, that whoever is born dies. That was a, a big one. And whoever is born also very definition of birth, it's a leading cause of stress. Everybody has stress. Nobody's immune to that. Everybody has unsatisfactoriness, even if you have a lot of free time. Everybody has unsatisfactoriness, even if you have good work that you love. Every life has within it unsatisfactoriness. So there's, there's suffering of the fact that you're born, suffering of getting sick, the suffering of getting old, suffering of dying. 
suffering of loss, suffering of not getting what you want, not wanting what you get. Everybody who's born has those experiences. Comes with the territory. It's not your fault. As my friend Wes says, you are not your fault. <laughs> Even you are born according to circumstances, out of your control. And we, don't, we know we're all going to die, but we don't know when. That's, unset that's unsettling. But this is how it is. So we cannot, we cannot rely on the pride. We can't put our pride in youth because youth gives way to aging. We can't put our pride in health because health gives rise to sickness. We can't put our pride in life because life ends too. So we see that everything is marked by change and impermanence. So there's nothing in this world of change that can give you a sense of reliable, permanent happiness. And so what do you do with that? As one person wrote on the wall of a cave when he was dying of dungy fever in, in Thailand, he says, oh, what a joy to know there's no happiness in this world. <laughs> it's a little bit of a paradox. There's a joy that we can discover. There's a happiness that we can discover that arises when we let go of our misperceptions of reality, let go of clinging to what we don't have and pushing away of what we, what we do have, or clinging to what we do have and pushing away what we don't have. All the ways that we turn our basic unsatisfactoriness into mental suffering. There is an experience that's possible that is inherent in any moment of mindful attention of, um, of letting go. As one of our lineage teachers put it, a fellow named Ajahn Chai, he says, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. Now, it doesn't mean the world comes to an end, but your struggles with the world. You stop fighting with reality. You start working so hard to get it right. We relax. So the recommendation is that you aim for this Lokutra Sukha. Aim for a happiness that doesn't depend on circumstances. Anybody interested in that? I'm just curious. Now, where do we find it? Acceptance. What's that? Acceptance. Acceptance, yeah. Compassion. Compassion. We find it right here. As the very nature of the mind through which you're perceiving. Your own heart, your own heart-mind, we call them, we say them interchangeably, is, um, is the Buddha, is, is the awakened one. That's why Gendon Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, says, says uh, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in your life experience, your body and mind, it has no ultimate importance at all. 
has little reality whatsoever. So why identify with it and become attached to it? Passing judgment upon it and ourselves. Far better to allow the entire game to happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing and manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes. This is meditative insight. Notice how everything vanishes. This, this key, this is a key when the Buddha saw sickness, old age, and death. This was the more macrocosmic view of impermanence. Comprehending impermanence, moment to moment, intimately, is the key, is the doorway to the realization of this experience of letting go. And notice how everything, wait, notice, let the game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are, to, they are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease, natural wakefulness. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and in this moment, nothing missing. Emaho, that means marvelous. Everything unfolds of itself. So, I, think, I think we've come to the end of our time. This is just the tip of the iceberg, but it all comes down to staying where you are. I do have a few more things to suggest before we stop. This The path of well-being and happiness as explored and expounded on by the Buddha includes inevitably both the, the, uh, the expression or the, the fountain of wisdom that comes through clear perception, but the face of that, of that wisdom, the expression of that wisdom is love and compassion. The more we understand our own nature, the more we understand the, the universality of our nature, the more we see that what lives inside of us, we see that lives inside of you. And we see that, in fact, we are, we are inseparable from one another. And that, that's why this path always leads toward goodwill, 
toward a natural inclination toward non-harming. And when the Buddha woke up, he basically said, do three things. He said, cultivate, because he, he couldn't help it anymore. He says, I realize, when I, as I awaken to my deepest nature, that's not apart from anything. It's, there's no inside, there's no outside. Everything is so intimately connected. He says, so the first thing you need to do, make sure that you do, both for the benefit of, of yourself and for others, is to purify your actions, to, to commit yourself from morning till night to practice non-harming, to cultivate the, the happiness that comes through purity of action so that you can, in this very life, experience the bliss of blamelessness. So that means non-harming with your speech, taking care with your livelihood, and, uh, and cultivating wise action, which means not killing, not stealing, not being exploitive in your sexual relationships, not intoxicating your mind to the point of carelessness and heedlessness, all, that, all the basic training guidelines, but making that so strong that it makes possible for your mind to settle. And so as you're working on purity of action, the happiness of being non-harming, develop the happiness that comes from a well-collected and concentrated heart. That means work on your practice day to day from morning till night. Sit formal practice, informal practice. Never let your mind leave your body, as, as uh, one teacher put it. So stay here, stay here, stay here. And you'll find that you will develop concentration, mindfulness, your energy will build, and this is what makes possible the... Um, the awakening of wisdom. And then the last part of the Noble Eightfold Path is wise thought. And then inclining your thoughts toward goodwill, toward generosity, as we talked about earlier, toward non-harming, and uh, toward wise understanding. And wise understanding is basically reflecting and realizing moment to moment the fact that there's things that are difficult to bear. What turns it into mental suffering is is grasping and holding on, pushing away, and that, there, that it's possible to be free, to let go. And then, it re, and then wise understanding is a reminder that this letting go is a matter of where you direct your attention, moment by moment. So the Buddha said, practice mindfully all the time, but mix that mindfulness, soften that mindfulness, moisten that mindfulness, with loving-kindness. And so I want to leave you, this is the last thing I'll share with you. To me, this is the, comes down to the essence of the practice of well-being and happiness as explored by the Buddha. And it's the, maybe the most famous sutra of the Buddha called the Metta Sutra. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. That's a revelation, isn't it? Peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. 
Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. The great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies, downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from the dependency on sense desires, is not born again into the suffering of this world. So may our practice today be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. May all of you be happy. May I be happy. May all beings everywhere be happy. Thank you so much for your practice. Thanks for your generosity. And sit every day. Walk every day. Do everything mindfully. And come sit with me on Tuesday nights in the city. And come to Spirit Rock. Sit lots of residential retreats. Uh, For anybody who does want to sit uh, with me in the city, missiondharma.org. And I won't be there this Tuesday because I start a retreat up the hill, but most every Tuesday I am there. But uh, I always have wonderful substitutes, so please, uh, if you're a city dweller, uh, support yourself and support the people who practice there. Thanks again. See you next time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.